good to see you this morning. Is it, is it good to be seen? Yes? Yes. Well, uh, we are going to get started in just a minute. We're going to cover several chapters and finish up Genesis today. Uh, if that doesn't make you excited, that we're going to be covering like eight chapters of the Bible. Um, we're going to be talking about suffering, so now you're really excited. Uh, but before we get there, we're going to start in Genesis 37. Um, a few announcements, uh, some reminders. Today at 4 o'clock, parents, it's the parents' sink, 4 to 6. Uh, if you don't know what to expect, it's okay. I don't know fully what to expect either. Brian and Cam, along with our uh, kids' ministry team, is putting together a fantastic two-hour time together. And we really need you to be here, parents, for this at 4 o'clock today. Next Saturday is the Churchwide Fellowship. Um, you can look at your worship guide for more details on that, but really want to invite you and encourage you to be here and, and invite. This would be a great time to invite maybe people from your block who maybe aren't interested or too, uh, too hesitant to come on a Sunday morning. Invite them out for a Saturday afternoon time of just food and fun with your church family. Um, that's at 5 to 8 this coming Saturday. And the last thing I want to make a note of is um, your worship guide has the insert with the, the SR Church News in there because the announcements right now are just... So there's so many of them. Uh, but that's now double-sided. Um, and so all the Easter announcements are on one side. So um, I want to encourage you, please, uh, read through there. I know it feels like you're cramming for an exam to read the announcements. But please read about all that is going to be going on on Easter weekend, starting on uh, Friday at the 48 Hours of Prayer. We'll be praying uh, in 30-minute intervals over this campus. Uh, some of you may want to sign up and be here in the in auditorium praying. You may want to pray at home and encourage you to sign up for that at the kiosk. Um, Friday night is our Good Friday service. We're going to do that again. We're going to um, break the silence on Saturday, Sunday morning with the sunrise service, celebrating the resurrection with three services on Sunday. And so um, I want to encourage you if, you, if there's somebody in your life you know, God has really encouraged me to share the gospel with this person, but I haven't yet struck up the conversation or figured out how to strike up the conversation, or maybe you have and they haven't responded, I'm going to encourage you to invite them to our Easter services. Um, it's a time of the year when people typically come to church anyway. Um, we'll be sharing the gospel boldly and loudly and cre creatively that morning um, with an expectation God's going to save people. So I want to encourage you to invite uh, friends, people around in your life on Easter Sunday uh, to one of our services. All right, uh, Genesis 37. The title for this morning's sermon is really, it's going to cover today and next Sunday, um, A Forgotten People. And so today we're going to be talking about um, what it... Uh, means to us when we suffer individually, um, specifically today, at the hands of other people, okay? And there are different types of suffering that we experience, um, and so I'm going to throw out just a few categories to kind of help us begin to think um, about suffering, uh, because our typical response when suffering hits is to blame who? God, this, right? God, this is your fault. And so very seldom do we take a step back and go, wait a second, let me look at what's causing this situation, so some different suffering um, that you'll find in the scriptures and in your life. Um, we have the suffering of Adam, which means this, with Adam's sin, we have all fallen underneath that curse. And so we experience sickness, we experience a body that's continually moving towards death and decaying, and we, um, we continue to struggle with sin because um, we're suffering um, as a result of, of what happened with Adam and Eve. Self-induced suffering, um, you guys... Uh, uh, you, you see this in other people's lives sometimes better than you see it in your own. I, I know I do. Um, but this is um, where we're suffering, but it's because of a decision that we made. Okay? Um, we made a bad decision, and so here are the results. We, 
got a ticket, we went to prison, or this relationship is broken, this person will never trust me again. So I'm suffering because of a decision that I made. Um, demonic suffering, it's in the scriptures, um, still, I believe, happens today. Um, we can't say everything is Satan's fault, but we do know that we still have an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion, lion to destroy us and kill us. Uh, there is um, victim suffering. Um, some of you uh, have experienced this and know this quite well, where you suffered um, at the hands and at the motive of somebody else. Abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, um, verbal abuse, um, maybe even in, in like in school, um, were just treated really poorly. Maybe you were bullied. Uh, maybe you were left out. Those are forms of suffering at the hands of somebody. You didn't do anything to earn that. Make sense? Um, collective suffering is where you're suffering simply because you're part of a group of people. Maybe you were born into a family of poverty. And so your suffering is a result of just kind of connection to the group of people you're with. Um, the Bible talks about end time suffering. Uh, so, so there's going to be a suffering that happens to humanity simply because you're existing in the end times. Um, disciplinary suffering. Do you know that God disciplines those he loves? You really need to distinguish this one from punishment, okay? When God punishes, he punishes with wrath. And so if God is doing something in your life to correct something, it's not punishment. Our punishment was bore in the suffering of Jesus on the cross, okay? So this idea, God's just punishing me, um, is not biblical. However, God does discipline. And, and what God does, like parenting, uh, he disciplines us for our, our good and to correct us and to maneuver us towards righteousness and holiness, um, there's vicarious suffering. Um, if you've ever watched a loved one suffering and you suffer because of what they're going through. Um, uh, thinking about uh, Hallie, my wife, her father um, went through a second battle of cancer shortly after we got married. And, uh, and so her little brother was still pretty young then and hadn't started shaving. So when it was time to shave his head, I was like the, the oldest male in the family at that time. And so I'll never forget him saying, you know, Jason, come here. And uh, he had started his chemo, his hair began to fall out. And he's like, hey, I need you to come back here and do something for me. I'm thinking, he needs me to lift something. He's shorter than me. Reach something. And he's like, hey, I need you to shave my head. And what a humbling moment. I'll never forget that. I mean, I was just trying not to nick his head. And, um, but, but we suffered because of his suffering at some level. Um, and then there's what, another big category, mysterious suffering. Um, just don't know. <laughs> is this something I did or is this something somebody else did? What's, we just can't figure it out. And here's... Here's the point, and, and so you know, I, there's actually a longer list here. I pulled these from uh, Mark Driscoll's um, blog post, 15 different types of biblical suffering. Um, here's the thing. Suffering is complex. Sometimes it's more than one. Um, and, and, you, and you really can't ever fully remove it from the sin factor, okay? And so it's not just, was this a result of sin or is this a result of, or is this suffering or sin? A lot of times it's both. A lot of times we participate even in what other people are doing to us, if we're just going to be real honest about it. And so this isn't category so that we can just take our suffering and put it in a category, but this will help us begin to understand the source of where it's coming from so that we can walk through it in the way God would ask us to walk through it, that we might experience what God wants us to experience. Now, just a little bit more before we get into this. Um, there are, there is a, um, there is a, I'll, I'll just be brief. There is a brief theological teaching that's really popular in the American culture, and it comes out of the American dream, okay? The American dream is not in the Bible. 
that God wants everybody to have, this beautiful white house with the picket fence and the grass. You know, that's, that's not in the Bible, okay? But there are some who perpetuate that as though God made a promise to you that you're going to get that. And so for that crew, suffering is always the result of the devil and God's never involved, okay? We don't believe that here, okay? And the reason why we don't believe that here is because we read the Bible and we see God heavily involved in suffering. That God is walking with his people in suffering, and he's even using suffering for purpose. Okay, so I want to make that disclaimer. You may fall into that former camp, and so I'm just going to encourage you to open your mind to see what the scriptures say today um, as we walk into Joseph's story. Okay, so we ended last week with the story of Jacob, who um, was renamed Israel. And so uh, Jacob has 12 sons and a daughter. Don't forget her. And, uh, and so these 12 sons are living in the land of their father and their father's father and their father's father's father. Okay? You remember this all started with Abraham. And so um, here's what's happening. Um, Jacob, Israel, I'm going to be using both those terms just so we understand I'm talking about the nation. Um, Jacob, uh, he has 12 sons, but he plays favorites with, his, with one of his sons, Joseph. And, uh, and as you can imagine, this doesn't go well with the other brothers. Wouldn't go well with me. Wouldn't go well with you. Um, hopefully not to the point that his brothers go to. But there's going to be some, just some natural animosity and envy that's going to come up uh, when this happens. Okay? You know, parents, we strive hard, right, to not play favorites. To keep it balanced, to be fair, whatever that is, right? I mean, that's just a goofy notion. But to be just in the way we handle our kids. Um, Jacob didn't, and so his brothers were envious. Now, to top it all off, Joseph had this gift from God to interpret dreams, okay? And, uh, and part of his personality was that he couldn't keep this to himself. And so he had a dream at one point in time, um, and so he should have kept his mouth shut. Well, we say that, but he, he didn't keep his mouth shut, and so he went to his brothers. And the dream had to do with how his brothers were going to bow down to him. Now, animosity is off the chart, right? So he comes, bros, I got to tell you this dream I had is so cool. Sit down and listen. Here's the dream, and here's what it means, right? And so little brother is now, right? He's not just little brother who gets treated, you know, better than everybody else. Little brother is now becoming, like, arrogant and boastful, and something needs to be done about little brother. So here's what happens. Um, The brothers are a little bit frustrated, Um, Joseph uh, is at home with his dad, and the brothers are off tending the sheep, and so Joseph sends his, sends Joseph, Jacob sends Joseph out to get a report from the brothers, okay? So Joseph's the one, Jacob's the one that's sending. So he goes out to the fields and can't find his brothers. He finds a man, he's like, hey, I'm looking for my brothers. Have you seen them? And the man says, oh yeah, they they went by here, but they're in somewhere else now, and he tells them, tells him where they are at. So he he goes to where his brothers are. And so we're going to pick up the story with Joseph kind of coming from a distance when the brothers see him, okay? So this is after the whole dream episode, uh, animosity is off the chart. These guys don't like little brother. And so we're going to pick this up in Genesis 37, verse 18. They, being the brothers, saw him, being Joseph, from afar, so at a distance. Now, if you know, Joseph had the coat of many colors. Uh, We know he's wearing the coat because of what happens later. So when, you, when they see him from a distance, probably one of the first things they see is his coat, which was a reminder of how dad favored little brother. So, I mean, just as soon as they saw him, anger is welling up. So they see him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to 
kill him. You see, you see the animosity? Like, like these guys have had enough. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now they're making fun of him. Right? So we know what the catalyst was. It was this whole dream episode. Oh, here he comes. Here comes a little dream teller. Verse 20, come, now let us kill him and throw him into the pits. Then, he, then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Now, they didn't know at this point. The dream came from God. There's nothing they could do to thwart God's plan. Right? So they're really ticked off about this. We'll see how your dream works out for you. How about we kill you, throw you in a pit, and we'll see who bows down to who. So this was what was taking place for Joseph. Now, there's one of the brothers has a conscience about it all. And he's like, hey, guys, listen, I don't feel good about the whole killing him. The blood's going to be on our hands. And so they're sitting down, they're eating, still kind of thinking about what they need to do. Because really they've already engaged in something. They've already taken him captive and, and thrown him in a pit. Um, they can't pretend like that didn't happen. So now they've got to figure out what to do. And they're eating. And so a band of gypsies comes by. Okay? These are descendants of Ishmael. If you remember Ishmael, he was the illegitimate son of Abraham. And they're coming by. And they're like, hey, I got an idea. Instead of killing him, let's sell him as a slave, a servant. That, that group of people will take him to Egypt. He's as good as gone, right? He can never be free. And then we don't have to deal with little brother anymore, right? And nobody has to tell dad. And so we'll just take his coat off, rip it up, put some blood on it from one of the animals, take it back to dad and go, looks like little brother got killed. But then we don't have to worry about the conscience of having killed him, right? This is the best plan. So this is what they do. So we're going to pick up now in Egypt in, in chapter 39. So they sell him into slavery um, as a servant. And uh, he is purchased as a servant for the Pharaoh. So just some, some help here in reading this story. This helps me. Okay, so he's going to become a slave, and later on he's going to be thrown in prison. Okay? So I, I'm tempted to kind of interpret that through the American experience, and I think of slavery, this horrible brutality, suffering, and then prison. So just to give you some idea of kind of what this was in context of culture, to be a slave or a servant at this time was a whole lot like what it would mean today to be in prison or maybe even in the military. I was thinking about that with, with BJ leaving tomorrow. So you're in a position where you can't leave. Somebody else is dictating your life. They're micromanaging every action, telling you when you can eat, when you can go to the bathroom, when you can lay down, when you get up. However, they take care of you. Okay, so that was servanthood. It wasn't like the slavery we saw here in the first half of the American experience. Okay, now however, prison for this culture was a lot like that. Prison was very, very torturous, okay? If somebody was put in prison, they were there because they did something wrong, and they were there to learn a lesson. And they weren't big on serving out long sentences, okay? So they wanted you to learn your lesson. They wanted you to learn it well and, and quickly because they had to, right, they had to tend to you while you were there. It was very, very brutal um, to be in prison. So that's our understanding of what's going on here. So he's a servant to Pharaoh. It wasn't a bad gig, okay? Um, a lot like prison is today. It's not a bad gig, okay? You can't leave. That's the, that's the suffering in it, right? You can't go. You can't always decide when you want to do what. However, you're taken care of. You have a place to sleep. You have food to eat. This is where Joseph is at in suffering, okay? So he's suffering right now, right? I mean, this isn't, this isn't uh, just a beautiful day in the neighborhood. However, it's going to get worse. 
What we want to look at together first is how Joseph responds to his suffering. Two, what God does through his suffering. Okay? And three, in the end, I'm asking a question, how can I respond like Joseph? How can I walk through suffering like Joseph? Okay? So let's walk through this together. Starting in 39, verse 1. Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites. There's that name, Ishmael, just so you know. Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. That was the band of gypsies. Two, the Lord was with Joseph. Not going to make a big deal of this. But, but this is going to continue all the way to next week. Where was God in Joseph's suffering? With him. Okay? He was with him. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of the Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. So, first off, Joseph's response to suffering, he worked hard. It's not my first response in suffering, right? Roll up my sleeves and I'm going to do a good job, right? This is, this is where I'm at. I'm in slavery. It's, I, I can't leave. I'm going to do the best I can. And God honored that. God blessed the work of his hands. He was not only a hard worker in the midst of his suffering, he was also trustworthy. That's going to come up over and over again in Joseph's story. And think about that in your own experiences when you go through hard times and people break your trust. Isn't it hard to remain trustworthy sometimes? To remain faithful to? To, to not, to not um, respond to your own invitation to your own pity party? Think about that. You throw a party for yourself, you invite yourself to it, and then you show up. And then you get upset because nobody else came. But to say, you know what, instead of doing that, instead of doing that, instead of becoming bitter, I'm going to remain trustworthy, and I'm going to work hard where I'm at. And God blessed him. But not only that, um, evidently Joseph was quite the looker. And uh, the Bible says that. Um, and, uh, and so the wife of the household had a thing for him. And so she came to him and came on to him, literally. And, uh, and so he responded by not responding. Now think about this, okay? He's tempted with what you might argue is probably man's second greatest temptation ever, the first being money, and the two kind of go hand in hand. But with sexual temptation, here he is, removed from his people, removed from accountability, Right? Removed from all the values that he was taught as a young man, living in his father's household. Right? It's a big deal. I've been working hard. Right? Don't I deserve this? And yet he responds by turning her away until one incident. And let's pick this up. And the end of verse 6 says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. Verse 8, here's his response. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house. He trusts me. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. I work hard for him. 
verse 9. He is not greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me except for what? For you. Your masters, your, your husband has trusted me with everything. Because you are his wife, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against who? God. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. This is where, if we're, I mean, let's just be honest. This is where I tend to jump ship, right? If we ever are excused to just give in and do what we want to do. Right? In the midst of suffering. Right? Where's God? You're not going to do this for me. You're going to let this happen to me. Well, you know what, God? Fine. I'm tired of trying. I'm just going to give in. I'm going to indulge a little bit here. It's it's true in my life as I've walked through hard times. It's a a really hard temptation to not want to just throw in the towel and say, you know what? Forget integrity. I'll do integrity when things are going well. And so not only did Joseph respond by working hard, by remaining trustworthy, he maintained his integrity. And, uh, and what's going to happen is she, she tries it again one, one too many times and grabs Joseph. And what he does, he takes off his cloak, <laughs> drops it. You've heard Jesus say that. Drops his cloak and takes off running. Now she's embarrassed. Now what's she going to do, right? So she screams and she sets Joseph up. She's a little bit embarrassed. Joseph won't give her what she wants. She sets him up calls in her husband and all the servants who work with Joseph and say, look at what happened to me. Joseph came on to me. I screamed. When I screamed, he dropped his coat. So guess what? Guess what his master did? All right. Bad's about to get worse. Now you're going to prison. Right? So think about that. What did Joseph do? He worked hard. He maintained his integrity. He remained to be trustworthy. And what happened? His situation gets worse. Verse 19, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. That's what his wife said. His anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into prison in a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. So now what's Joseph going to do? Here's what he's going to do. He's going to continue to work hard. He's going to continue to be trustworthy. He's going to continue to to maintain his integrity. And he's going to continue to share his gifts with other people. Remember, he's the dreamer and the dream interpreter. Guess what he does in prison? Evidently, Pharaoh used this um, a lot on his people. Um, And so Pharaoh's cupbearer and his baker um, really upset him over something. And so he throws them in prison. So those two guys are there with Joseph. And they have these dreams, and they hear about Joseph's the dream interpreter, and they bring them to Joseph. And Joseph says, he interprets the dream for both of them. It's two different dreams, two different interpretations. And, uh, and so um, he says to them, hey, here's the thing. I'll do this for you. Hey, just don't forget me when the king restores you into his service. Just don't forget me. That's all I ask. Well, um, here's what happens. The baker, um, at the end of his serving his sentence, he just gets killed. He gets hanged. It just didn't go well if you were going to prison. But the cupbearer got restored to service. And remember, Joseph said, just, just don't forget me. Um, just so you can kind of see the, 
the depth of his suffering. Verse 20 of chapter 40. We're in chapter 40, going to read a couple verses. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants. And he lifted up his head, lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among the servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hands. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. And we're going to read that this, if you read verse 1 of chapter 41, after two whole years. This is two years, two more years. So suffering got worse and it's, and it's getting worse. What's Joseph doing? Working hard, remaining faithful, trustworthy, maintaining his integrity, continuing to give his gifts to other people. And his situation, is it getting better? No, not yet. Not yet. So here's what's going to happen. Um, Pharaoh's going to have a dream uh, with cows. Seven of them are healthy. Seven of them are real skinny and sickling. And he doesn't know what to do about his dream. He's talking about it. And the cupbearer remembers, oh, I remember, there's a guy back in prison. He interpreted a dream for me. Matter of fact, he's the one that, that kind of interpreted that I was going to be restored. You know what? We could go get him, and he could interpret your dream for you. He's pretty good, you know. Now, this is like, like, we read this and we're tempted to go, oh, Joseph was using this to get out of prison. There's no indication at this point that things are going to get better if he interprets the dream. Matter of fact, the last time he interpreted a dream, things got worse. Okay? So there's nothing here to make us believe, oh, Joseph is just doing this for Pharaoh to earn his favor and get out, okay? So here, but here's what he does. He interprets the dream. He says, here's the thing, Pharaoh. The seven healthy cows, those, are, those represent seven years of plenty. But the, the other seven that are sickly and they're all bony, that represents seven years of famine, and it's going to happen in that order. So here's what I would do. I'd take a fifth of everything that you harvest during the seven years of plenty and store it up so that in the seven years of fam- famine, not only will you survive, but the land will have plenty. Pharaoh went, wow, that's brilliant. And so he gets him released out of prison. Now, the famine is, is not just specific to this region. It covers the land of his father, okay, and the land of his father's father, the land of Canaan. And so this famine is wide, widespread, and it happens just like Joseph said. You can imagine, I mean, like for the Pharaoh, he's kind of trusting this kid. Seven years of plenty. This is pretty good. We're storing it up. We're storing it up. And then on the eighth year, when famine strikes, at that point, he's like, you're the man. You're the man. And so he's treating Joseph really well. Puts him in charge of a lot. So now his situation has changed, hasn't it? Okay? But don't forget, who was it who actually put him here? His brothers. It wasn't Pharaoh. It wasn't Pharaoh's, you know, his, uh, his head chief that first bought him. It wasn't these people, it was his brothers. If he's going to have any bitterness, you know, resentment, unforgiveness, it's going to be towards who? Not, not the cupbearer who forgot him, not Pharaoh, not the prison guards, but his brothers. And they're the ones who, who set, him, set him in this place. I want you to see something, okay? So here's what happens. Famine strikes. Joseph's brothers and his dad are still in their homeland. Um, the fields begin to, um, the, the, the ponds, the streams begin to dry up, and the fields begin to wither and turn to dirt, right? So what was already kind of a desert land becomes just pure desert. The flock is dying. Um, there's no food for them. They're getting incredibly desperate. 
But they, they hear about how Pharaoh had stored up during the years of plenty, and he had plenty, and he was selling it to people. So Jacob, Israel, right, Jacob, he sends ten of his sons to go to Pharaoh to negotiate. Maybe he'll sell some food. He sends money with them. He keeps the youngest. He's got a new favorite now. Remember, Joseph's gone. He thinks Joseph's dead. So Benjamin becomes his favorite. And, uh, and so he doesn't send him. He sends the ten older brothers. He learned his lesson. Going to keep little, little brother here with me. So he sends them. So they come into the presence of Joseph. Joseph recognizes them immediately, but they don't immediately recognize him. And so at first he speaks harshly to them, the scripture says. And uh, we don't get any indication that it's because he's mad. He's really testing their heart motives. He's unveiling some things. Because in the end he's going to speak kindly to them. He's speaking to them harshly. He's saying, I don't trust you. You guys are spies. Prove it to me that you're not spies. And so they're like, well, we, our dad sent us here, and we, we, we had, we, there were 12 of us, and, and one of us just was, was killed, and Joseph was the one that they were talking about. He knew that they were lying, right? Oh, and then our younger brother, he's still at home with our dad. So Joseph said, oh, I got an idea. Um, tell you what, I'll send you home with some, some, some grain. Take it to your, uh, but to prove to me that you're being honest, I want you to come back and I want you to bring your little brother with you just, just to prove to me that you're not spies. So they go home. They're a little freaked out because not only that, Joseph puts the money back in their saddlebags. And so they, they pop open the grain. They're like, oh, crud. Here's all the money we were supposed to pay for. Uh, I don't know, parents, have you ever done that where your kids bring something home they don't, they don't pay for? Oh. This is basically what's happening. We just shoplifted all this surplus grain. Holy cow, we can't go back. And so they're scared. They don't want to go back with little brother because Pharaoh's going to be upset. They don't know who put it there. They didn't know that Joseph put it there and he was testing them. But here's what happens. They run out of grain again. So now what? Dad's like, fine, go back. Take that money back with you. Here's some extra. You, you take your little brother with you and you go back. And so we're going to step into chapter 45. And they're standing before Joseph. And this is the great reveal where Joseph is like, hey, hey, it's me. And so at first, when Joseph speaks, he's, he's weeping, and they're kind of at a distance. They don't recognize him, okay? So here's what he's going to do in verse 4 of chapter 45. And Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And this was a big deal, okay? They're very scared. They didn't know what he was going to do. And he's weeping, he's crying, he's, they can't understand what he's saying, and he says, come near to me. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold in Egypt. Now, at this point, what we understand, it was still a big deal to Joseph. He wasn't responding this way because he didn't think it was a big deal. He's weeping here that his brothers had sold him and and betrayed him into slavery. And we're now lying to people, telling everybody that he was dead. He's weeping. He's broken over this situation. He looks his brothers in the eye and says, I'm Joseph. I'm the one you sold in slavery. But look at what he says. Verse 5. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. What? He's comforting them now. What a strange thing to do. 
when somebody causes suffering in your life, to be able to not only respond with, right, this is my situation, I'm going to work hard, I'm going to remain faithful, I'm going to remain trustworthy, I'm going to maintain my integrity, I'm not going to use this as an excuse to go on a rampage of sin. I'm going to continue to just to be generous with the gifts God has given me. Oh, yeah. And I'm going to comfort those who sent me here. And now we begin to see Joseph extending mercy and grace in the midst of his suffering. So the question, Joseph, how do you do that? That question's getting bigger, isn't it? It's getting louder. Like, I get making the best of your situation. Okay, I can't do anything to change it, so I'm going to work hard and be the best I can be in this situation. That kind of makes sense to me. Being generous with your gifts to other people, meh, he's just a good-hearted guy, right? In the day, he's like, meh, I can't get out of here. I'm just going to, I'm going to go ahead and be nice to other people. But right here, we see Joseph refusing to be defined by his suffering. He looks at them and he says, Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. Quit beating yourselves up. Quit losing sleep at night over your guilt over what you did to me. Look at what he says next. For God sent me before you to preserve life. not even blaming them. Who's he, who's he accrediting for his situation? God. And at the end, we'll get to how in the world do you get to that place? But here's how he's responding. He's not holding anything against them. He, he's not even blaming them. He's saying, I'm here because God wanted me to be here. God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine had been has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing or harvest. Guys, it's about to get worse. That's what he's saying to his brothers. It's about to get worse. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Do you know what he just referred to? The promise. God made a promise to Abraham. You guys remember him? Remember our, our, our great-grandfather Abraham? God said he was going to bless his family. We're going to read on. There's only 70 right now in this family. Remember that? Hey, I'm just trying to keep that promise alive and do my part. I'm believing that God made this promise, and he sent me here, and I can see it. Right? I mean, without provision, what's going to happen to the descendants of Abraham? They're going to die of starvation. So what's he doing here? He's looking at the bigger story of God, right? And he's just seeing his, his position as one little part in the story. You guys, quit beating, quit beating yourselves up. God purposed this. God planned this. And now he's using it to keep you alive. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now, we're going to fast forward. Um, just a couple things I want you to see. Um, the end of chapter 47, um, or in 47, um, 
Joseph sends his brothers back to get dad and, and literally bring the whole family to Egypt. This is, how, this is how the Israelites get to Egypt. This is where we're going next week, okay? So Joseph's in favor with Pharaoh, right? Let's him bring his whole family in, takes care of them, famine's not over. So for the Israelites, this is a pretty good, pretty good gig now, right? I mean, we sold little brother into slavery. Now that decision, which was no less, none less the evil, right? God's not saying that wasn't evil. But now that decision has played out in a way that's preserving their life in God's bigger story. And so this, if you look at uh, 47, 27, this is just beautiful. Thus Israel. So now when God says Jacob's name Israel, he's talking about the whole group of them. See how God's beginning to refer to them as a nation? Now Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were, look at this, fruitful and multiplied greatly. Does that sound familiar? Takes you back to Genesis 21. The purpose, right, that man was created was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That hasn't changed yet. It's not going to change. But it also takes us uh, to Genesis 12, this promise that God makes to Abraham. You're going you're gonna to be fruitful and multiply, and then through your descendants, I'm going to bless all the inhabitants, all the families, all the nations, all the tribes, all the tongues of the entire earth. And so God moves Israel to Egypt to accomplish this plan. Now, we're going to fast forward to, verse, to chapter 50 and end here. Um, Jacob dies, and uh, he's buried. Uh, this grieves Joseph. Um, deeply at the beginning of chapter 50. But we're going to look at Joseph's final concluding response. And we're going to pick this up at the end of verse 17. And here's what happens. Um, There's finally, dad is dead. Um, The brothers come to Joseph and say, oh, by the way, before dad died, he wanted you to forgive us. Why don't you just ask for forgiveness, right? Right? Uh, just, I mean, just saying, he wanted us to come to you. He wanted you to forgive us. And so, but Joseph responds. Look at how he responds, starting at the end of 17. Again, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. What does that tell you about Joseph's heart? It's broken. This wasn't an easy time. This wasn't an easy 14 to 20 years of his life since they sold him. I mean, first, I mean, can you imagine? Let's just think about the betrayal. Your brothers. You're coming to greet them. All of a sudden, they jump you, throw you in a hole. They probably don't even tell you whether they're not going to let you out or not. They're just going to leave you there for dead. You hear them kind of arguing amongst themselves. Let's kill him. No, let's just leave him there to die. And then somebody says, hey, let's sell him to slavery. Well, that's comforting. Come back over to the hole. Joseph, we changed our minds. Here's a rope. We've got, we're going to do something different. He gets to the top of the rope. They grab him. Now, instead of killing you, we're going to sell you to those people. You sell him. I mean, can you imagine your own brothers are the ones handing you over? He has no idea what's in store for him. He doesn't know who's going to buy him. He's bought into the household of Pharaoh. He responds by working hard, remaining trustworthy, maintaining his integrity, sharing his gifts, being merciful and graceful to those around him. Now his brothers are coming to him saying, Please forgive us for that, right? Isn't this the moment we all long for when we suffer at the hands of other people? Right, Christians? They'll just ask for forgiveness. Um, 
I'm not going to pretend like I've suffered a whole lot in life, um, but I've walked through some seasons that were pretty dark that I would call suffering for me. And, uh, and one of those was a situation with, with my dad, and it was boxed up in this whole situation, not fitting in in school, and just all this mess. So it's not, I'm not putting all on my dad. However, I placed a lot of blame there. And I'll never forget writing my dad a letter in prison as a grown man, laying out all the things he had done wrong to me and telling him how I just wanted to forgive him if he would ask for it. I was ready to forgive him if he would ask for it. Isn't that the moment we, we long for? Is those who have suffered at the hands of other people? So here's the moment. And we're gonna see Joseph's response. Verse 18, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are now your servants. That's interesting. They sold him to be a servant. Now they're saying, hey, tables are turned. We'll be your servants now. That's how we'll pay you back. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? What a profound theological statement. When we choose to hold on to resentment, bitterness, ultimately unforgiveness towards those who have wronged us, we are maintaining a place of God in that situation. Just something about suffering that came up in our last life group conversation I think would be helpful for us today. We are tempted to compare suffering, to get through suffering sometimes, right? To say my situation, well, it could be worse. Some problems with that. One, what happens if the person you're comparing your suffering to, their situation gets better? And you're setting yourself up for jealousy or envy, right? Well, I, I was comforted, but now your situation is better than mine. Two, what about the last man on the totem pole? What does he do? Think about that. Like, about four years ago, I was called by a former student in youth ministry who said, I need you to do a funeral for me. I'm like, okay, did your mom or dad or your grandparents pass away? No, my four-year-old daughter drowned in a swimming pool. And she did so because we forgot to latch the door. I mean, right? How do you tell him to compare his situation to somebody else's and get through it? You can't. Your suffering is not between you and other people. Your suffering, as we see from Joseph's life, is between you and God alone. Only God can bring purpose out of the pain. Only God can walk through you and comfort you in the midst of the pain. And so we see this example in Joseph. And he says, am I in the place of God? And then look at what he says. As for you, I'm not pretending like what you did was right. Look at what he says. As for you, you meant evil against me. What you did was wicked. It was wrong. It was painful. It hurt. Right? No place on earth that, that I would rather not be than on the chopping block to be sold as a servant and then be put in prison. It was evil. But God meant it for good. That speaks of intentions, okay? You meant this for evil, but God meant it. He had cognitive thought about it. He was intentional with it for good. You know what that tells me about my suffering and your suffering? There's never just one thing going on. There never is. Does it make the pain feel less painful? Nope. But does it provide a sense of purpose in the pain? Yeah, it does. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. To bring it about that many people, there's the promise again. Many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. 
I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he, look at them, comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph's response in suffering, especially you know, as a victim here, he knew exactly who his perpetrators were. He knew them by the name. He knew the smell of their breath. He knew all their secrets. He responded by working hard, remaining faithful, remaining trustworthy. Right? He continued to share his gifts with other people, being generous. He was merciful and graceful. And here's how he did it. So here's some advice for me. Here's some advice for you from Scripture. Instead of comparing your suffering to other people, how about this? First of all, you compare your suffering to Christ. Start there, because that one doesn't change. Has there ever been a more innocent person who suffered more wickedly? No. No. You want to talk about bad things happening to good people? Look at Jesus. Has anything worse ever happened to anything better, any person better? No. So start there, okay? But don't stop there. What we learn from Joseph is this. If you want to walk through your suffering like Joseph walked through suffering, you've got to see your story as part of God's bigger story. God is writing a bigger story than just your life. And he's carrying forward a promise for the generations. And there is a coming kingdom. And guess what? Suffering is part of our experience. Some of us have suffered greatly. Some of you are suffering right now. Others of us have been spared a great deal of suffering, yet we don't know what lies around the corner, right? So the point of the gospel is not to, 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 to pull you onto a path that never experiences suffering. The point of the gospel is to give you a hope in the midst of suffering, saying, I believe in a God who has a bigger story here. I believe in the suffering of Jesus, and I'll never suffer, suffer to the extent that he suffered for me because of my wickedness and my evil. And God still takes what we plan and what we mean for evil, and he means it for good. I'll end with one last verse from the Apostle Paul. He says this in Romans, uh, Romans 8, 18. For I, this is Paul, consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Apostle Paul says, listen, there's a bigger story here than just me. Now next week we're going to talk about God with us in suffering. This week we're looking at God's bigger story and how we walk through suffering. None of this, though, hear me, is to minimize the pain that we feel. As a matter of fact, quite the opposite. If you're walking through pain and suffering, can I encourage you to bring that real raw pain and suffering to Jesus? Don't pretend like it's not happening. Don't excuse it away because it's happening to somebody else. God has purpose in the pain, right? Isn't that what we're seeing here? What the world means for, for evil for you? God is saying, no, I've got a plan here of good. Bring it to me. I'm gonna encourage you to bring your pain and your suffering to God today. Let's pray together so the worship team comes back up.